Does motherhood feel so daunting? It starts the moment you find out you're pregnant and all of the decisions and responsibility can feel like a heavy weight. Imagine not feeling this once or twice, but 10 times. Today, my guest is a super amazing mama, Abby Halberstadt, or you may know her as Emma's for Mama. Abby is a wife, homeschooling mama of 10, Bible-believing Christian, and best-selling author. She came on the show to share her wisdom and her expertise in motherhood and share the message that hard is not the same thing as bad. She shares her birth stories, including both of her twin births, which, spoiler alert, one of those happened to be a home. And she also shares what going past her due date and having weeks of prodromal labor are like and how she has overcome that mental hurdle. This episode was jam-packed full of encouragement and wisdom, and you won't want to miss it. But before we get into the show, I want to give you a little life update. I am officially off of Instagram. What? Yes, I know. It's been 10 years in the coming. (laughs) I'm fully committed to being present on here two episodes per week. And if you still want to stay connected, join our free Facebook community. I'm excited for what this next phase of life will look like without Instagram, but also we'll be missing talking to so many of you. So if you have any questions or you want to connect, make sure you email me. You can find all of the links in the show notes to connect with both Abby and myself. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Peaceful Home Birth Podcast, where your journey to a joyful and empowered birth experience begins. I'm your host, Allie McLean, a registered nurse, home birth coach, devoted wife, and proud mother to four incredible kiddos. I've walked the path from trauma to triumph, and I'm here to guide you every step of the way. At the Peaceful Home Birth Podcast, we're more than just a show. We're a community of dreamers, believers, and fearless mothers-to-be. If you're seeking to reclaim your birth story, to transform fear into confidence, and to embrace the beauty of home birth, you've found your tribe. My own transformative journey began with a traumatic C-section, propelling me on a quest to uncover the power of home birth. And now I'm on a mission to help you rise above your past, prevent needless C-sections, and stand firmly in the certainty of your dream birth. As a devoted follower of Jesus, I believe that His divine design for birth is inherently good. It is a reflection of His love, strength, and grace. If the dream of home birth has been planted on your heart, know that it's there for a purpose. And I'm here to stand with you as you pursue it wholeheartedly. In a world filled with racing thoughts and doubts, I'm your guide to taking those thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ and replacing them with the liberating truth. Together, we'll navigate the challenges that lie ahead, finding not only freedom, but also unbridled joy on your path to motherhood. This podcast is a haven for the woman who has faced the darkness of a traumatic birth and has questioned whether home birth is within her reach. Here we shatter those doubts. Join us for illuminating interviews with remarkable birth workers who share our reverence for the sanctity and splendor of birth. Listen to inspiring women as they recount their triumphant birth stories, each a testament to the strength that resides within you. So whether you're just starting to explore the world of home birth or you're already on this radiant journey, 
that Peaceful Homebirth Podcast is your sanctuary, your wellspring of knowledge, and your unwavering support system. Get ready to be inspired, to be empowered, and to embark on a path that leads you to the birth you've always dreamed of. It's time to experience the Holy Spirit's power, to embrace the beauty of birth, and to create a legacy of love and strength. Are you ready to transform your birth experience? Let's dive in. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. Um, But before we get into this awesome episode, I just know that there's going to be so many amazing um, tips and advice and just wisdom coming out of this um, interview for my audience. So before we get into all of that, would you just introduce who you are, what you do? Awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Abby Halberstadt, and a lot of people just call me mama including the 10 people at home who call me mama <laughs> legitimately because I've run a blog slash ministry for the last 12 years or so called M is for mama. And, um, I have podcast episodes and, and blog posts about where I came up with that name and kind of why it's on my heart. But, um, I have two sets of twins. My ages range from two and a half to 17 years old. So I've heard the lovely term straddle parenting recently. And that's definitely the season that I'm in where I'm straddling teenagers and a kid that just graduated because we homeschool and he graduated a year early and little bitties who are not even potty trained yet and everybody in between, which I actually love. It stretches you. It definitely is hard. But as I love to say, hard is not the same thing as bad. And um, it's so good to be able to have babies snuggles or little little boy snuggles and then just hang out with your teen and go shopping with your preteen girls and read with your eight-year-old and play games with your four and six-year-old it's just it's such a fun stage to be in um and I am an author I have a couple of books um Emma's for Mama and one that's coming out called Heart is Not the Same Thing is Bad because it's something that I talk about all the time um I'm married to a really really amazing man who is my best friend and we built a couple of houses together haven't done that in a while the current house that we live in that we built we've been here for six years so that's that's a bygone thing and uh I think it's the kind of thing that you can only do about once a decade before you're like yeah I need a break um and I'm a fitness instructor um like I said we homeschool and I do some speaking engagements so we stay busy for sure Yeah, well, I can, I mean, listening to you and like everything that you do from a mom of four, I'm like, oh my gosh, how did she get it all done? Like, (laughs) I have a hard enough time keeping my laundry and my dishes done. And I can't imagine doing that with 10 kids. So I'm really excited to hear some of your wisdom. And like, I'm sure with every kid, you've gained just more and more insight and more and more tools. And I know your podcast has been so helpful for me. And that was actually where I first heard um, you had had a home birth. And mm-hmm. I, I I love home birth. That's what a lot of this podcast is about. Um, just my story and then hearing a lot of women um, who have had empowered births because I came from... Um, having a C-section with my first and it was super traumatic. And I was like, there has to be a better way. I felt so disconnected from my kids and that really carried into motherhood. And so I, you know, my mission was if I'm going to start at the beginning, like the beginning of when I become a mom at conception, I'm going to foster that all the way up until, you know, the end. So I heard that you had had a home birth and I was like, oh my gosh, she has 10 kids. I definitely have to talk to Abby about 
her stories and especially twin home birth. Um, so you have two sets of twins and that's what mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about today because I haven't had, uh, I don't think I've, I had one twin mom on and that was a long time ago, like three years ago. So we need a new story and I'm really excited <laughs> to hear yours. Um, so let's start from the beginning with your first child. Um, how did home birth even get on your radar at all? So my first was in the hospital and I didn't do any, I didn't do an epidural. I think at one point, I don't think, I know at one point I had a half dose of Stadol. That's, that's as much. And I was, I had been in labor for like 40 hours, 42 hours at that point or something, mm, maybe 38, somewhere in the bleary. Like I have no idea how long I've been in labor, mm-hmm. just contracting, hadn't slept for two nights. And so that nurse wasn't pushing it, but she was like, Hey, you might get some rest. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, in the one hand I did kind of get zonked and got a couple of minutes of sleep. And I thought my contractions had stopped, but really I was falling asleep so fast in between contractions Mm -hmm. that they were still coming every two and a half minutes. And I thought like, Oh no, now they're 30 minutes apart. We've killed my labor, but I was just like, and then wake up. And so that's, that has problems in and of itself. The main thing I didn't love about that, even just having that little bit of, um, of those meds in my system, even though they gave me a break was that I really couldn't get out of bed for transition. So I did my first ever transition of my life on my side in a bed and felt like my back was going to break and felt like I couldn't, I didn't know how to breathe. I was trying, but I I really, you know, you just don't know what you're doing with their first. So I survived that transition and felt like I had been attacked. And then pushing was easy. Praise the Lord. He came out in a couple of pushes. And I remember thinking, this is the best thing ever. Just get this baby out of my body. This, I feel like I'm actually doing something rather than having something done to me. And so his birth, his actual birth, pushing him out was great. And then I didn't like being there. Like my tailbone hurt after six hours of lying in that hard, you know, bed. And I didn't like being woken up and I didn't want my baby taken away from me. And these were things that I just, I hadn't done enough research Mm -hmm. to know you just kind of do the hospital birth because it's what people do. Mm -hmm. But I did know I didn't want the epidural. I did know I didn't want stronger meds. I did know I didn't want to be induced. I like I had, I had convictions and preferences, but after you go through that first, you're like, okay, okay. How, how could this be better? And I really hadn't heard much about home birth, but I had some friends that had used this midwife named Thalia and a couple of other midwives. So we got pregnant nine months later and I started interviewing midwives because I thought I can do this without meds. I know I can, I pretty much already did. And, um, I feel like it would just be a better experience if I were in my own home. And so that's, that's kind of where that bug got in there because I have done at this point, every birth, but three at home and I've had eight births. Well, yeah. and, and two of them have had two babies. So yeah. we're going to call that 10 births because I birthed 10 That's babies. That's right. You sure yeah. did. Yes, but you did. But there were eight, eight individual experiences of going into labor. So um, that's what got it started was just kind of not having a bad hospital experience, but not having an ideal experience. Right. Yeah. There's always something that is deep inside from all of the women that I've talked to who are like either have had births in the hospital or considering births, they have this deep desire in them to birth naturally. Like most every woman I have talked to, and maybe that's just the people that come to me, but they, they have this dream and desire. And then a lot of times they've 
go to the hospital because of just cultural, you know, that's normal. And then they realize, wait, this is not what I was wanting. And so a lot of second time moms, I am hearing that as a pattern. I mean, that was me, but yeah. Um, I also, before we get started, you have all of your births, except the last part of your twin, your last twin birth up on your podcast. Is that right? Yeah. So if you want all the gory details, although I keep it fairly non-gory yeah, my, <laughs> because my son edits them oh. and I want him to want to have kids one day without <laughs> too much knowledge of female anatomy. So I kind of, I kind of, uh, I rein it in. That is so funny. I love that so much. Well, I have so enjoyed listening to all of your births because it seems like our labors are very similar. And I don't meet a lot of women who like have the long drawn out births. I mean, I've had four and all of them have been so freakishly long (laughs) and nobody ever talks about that. Um, so is there something that you've done to kind of help prepare mentally or even in the moment? I I know for me, I'm like trying to talk myself through. It's okay if I'm in labor for 20 hours, like I can, I've done it before I can do it again. And um, yeah. Is there, is there something that you've done to prepare for each labor? I think that um, I am not the best preparer for anything. Meaning like people are like, what do you do to prepare for your second child versus having one? And I'm like, well, I mean, you take care of yourself and you, um, you, you talk to the, to the first child about the new baby coming and you foster love and you put meals in the freezer. But as far as like this real kind of, I'm going to get in this headspace. I am more of the personality that says when I get there, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Because if I dwell on it too long, I will get more anxious if I am trying to micromanage things And I feel like in many ways, that's how we're called to live scripturally, Mm -hmm. because we're not supposed to worry about tomorrow because today has enough trouble of its own. So I do tend to be the macro planner rather than the micro planner. I am going to be ready for this baby coming. It's not going to be some big surprise when I start going into labor. Of course, I've anticipated this and taken practical steps to be ready. We have the birth kit, you know, we have the midwife lined up. My mom is standing by to take kids. If she, you know, that all just kind of those, like I said, those big chunks of things that are easy to say when and if, when, not if this happens, this is what will, this is how it will go, hopefully. But when it comes down to like, the worship music that I want in the room, <laughs> like affirmation, scripture cards. I'm not that girl. Mm-hmm. I'm just not that girl. Um, I find that those tend to stress me more than help me. So if you are that girl, I'm not criticizing mm-hmm. you, but I'm not going to be much help to you in that, in that sense. So my active labors, like the really painful, intense parts typically end up being about seven hours, mm-hmm. but I will be contracting for a long time mm-hmm. and not getting much sleep and kind of, it just wears you out because you're never sure when it's going to end. When you Even have though, the long prodromal labors too. Yeah. So yeah, I that's... start contracting around 36 weeks, Yeah, meaning like develop patterns. It, I'd be tr- contracting every four minutes and walking around the grocery store and you just get, and some people are like, Whoa, how do you do that? I'm like, because it's not transition contractions. Mm-hmm. It's just, you might have to pause by the pasta <laughs> and then keep going, you know, kind uh-huh. of thing, because, you know, it's just not close enough, long enough. And, you know, 
often enough, whatever, to actually produce a baby. So you just start ignoring them. You just change your mindset. And maybe that's just what you're asking. What is the mindset shift? The mindset shift is um, there's no way out of this, but through, and I get a baby at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to take it one contraction at a time when it comes as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. That's so good. So wise. Um, Well, I would love to get into your twin birth. So for your first one, what pregnancy was it that you got pregnant with twins? It would have been my, well, we had a miscarriage between our um, second and third. And so it would have been my fifth pregnancy, but fourth live baby, except it turned out to be twins. So fourth and fifth. Yeah. So tell me about that pregnancy and finding out you were pregnant with twins. How did that go? If you had asked me the one thing that I was just petitioning God, because we have pretty open-handed approach to children and numbers of children and ultimate numbers of children, like we're not interested in vasectomies, we're not interested in tubal ligations, we're not interested in hormonal birth control. Um, And we can, I know, I know Mm -hmm. you said you kind of wanted to talk about more of that later, so we can, but um, I had opinions about multiples. I'm like, Lord you know, I don't know how many kids I'm going to have. I'm open to having me just, just one at a time, please. Like, come on. (laughs) That doesn't sound like fun. And I know people that think that it does sound like fun that are like so stoked about the concept of twins. I was literally the opposite. I was like, that just sounds like work. It just sounds like work. And I don't mind work, but like, let's do it reasonably here, people. Right. And so, um, I went in and I always measure behind, like sometimes a lot behind, like concerningly behind, except the babies are fine. Um, so for example, with my number three, she was measuring, measuring 30 centimeters. My fundal height was 30 centimeters at 42 weeks pregnant. Oh, wow. So they were like, uh, you know, but she was six pounds, five ounces and she was fine and she's perfectly healthy. Um, no problems whatsoever. Um, but I just kind of hide them. I'm long waisted. Mm-hmm. I don't go way out, you know, and those fundal height measurements are such a guess anyway. So mm-hmm. not too worried about it, but I don't measure big. That's my point. And so I, at 10 weeks was measuring a little bit ahead. And my midwife was like, Ooh, that's not normal. Cause up to 12 weeks, you really don't have much difference between baby sizes. Like no matter. Yeah. No matter if you could have a six foot six husband and be six feet tall and your fundal height would be pretty similar to a five foot tall person before 12 weeks. And then after that, it starts differentiating a lot. So she's like, okay, so before 12 weeks. Yeah. So I'm like, what are we looking at? She goes, could be twins. And I'm like, no. And I just kind of started. I'm like, okay, Thalia. So, okay. But then I went back at 17 weeks and um, was measuring like at 16 or something. So I was like, ah, Luke, you know, whatever. But I will say, I really felt like the Lord planted that seed in my mind because there was always this thought. I would have never, ever thought that I was having twins other than that one little measurement at that first midwife appointment. And so I think it just kind of was what took the edge off. So at 19 weeks, we had a sonogram and the minute, and, and my husband had just moved on. Oh yeah, that was a fluke. The minute she put that wand on my belly, I'm like, there are way too many things in there. Like there's (laughs) legs and heads. Uh What is going on? And he's, my husband is rubbing my leg and just staring at me like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, I am, I'm fine. Like this thing that I dreaded and I was sure it's going to be like the hardest thing ever. It's going to be okay. You know? And it's because the Lord had prepared my my Mm -hmm. heart and my brain and I'd kind of prayed about it and 
you start to tiptoe up to the idea and all of a sudden it doesn't sound as bad anymore. You're like, oh, well, that would be kind of, but it's probably not. So I'm like, okay, okay, we're having twins. And then it turned out to be mono dye twins, which is where you have one sack per baby. Sorry, I said that backwards. Yeah, I sort of said that correctly. You have one placenta, mm-hmm. but each baby has her own sack in this case, which um, there's all kinds of different combos mm-hmm. of that. You can have two placentas and two sacks. You can have one placenta and one sack, which is scary. Yeah. That's that's where you really are worried about the babies because the chances of tearing the amniotic sac really increase when you've got two babies that are stretching it, of course. And so mono dye usually means identical twins. We've never had them genetically tested, but based on their looks in the mono dye part, it's almost assuredly that they're identical girls. And so, yeah, that was, that was the, that was the putting the toes into the water of, of twin territory. Oh man. I, I, that's one of the things too. I've told the Lord, like "Mm, twins, that just sounds way too hard. So I just love hearing that. Like he really does prepare your heart beforehand and he equips those who, he calls. I truly yeah. believe that. So that's yeah. beautiful. So you're going through your pregnancy and you, how does that go with deciding, like, does your midwife deliver twins? How did that decision-making go when it comes to birth? Yeah. So I'd had two home births at this point, had gone to 42 weeks, both times. And both of those home births kind of driven myself crazy, wanting them to come earlier. And so it had to learn to chill a little bit. And I immediately knew that I wanted to do a home birth if it was even possible with these babies. I really just didn't. I'm not a, not a worrier. I'm not a worst case scenario. I do consider those things, but you could just kind of weigh them and you, you move on if you don't have an absolute conviction that you're being foolish to, to press forward. And so I talked to my midwife, she had delivered 19 sets of twins at that point. Wow. And she had a t- another twin client. And before my girls were born, she delivered her 20th set. So I think they were number 21, if I'm not telling a lie here. But it was somewhere in that range. She'd been practicing for like 25 years, 30 years, something like that. She was very confident. If she had if she had dithered around and been like, well, I don't know, I, I would have been like, okay, we need to pursue some other options. But she was like, sure, I will deliver your twins. And yes, we can do a home birth. Like you're not far from a hospital. This is not going to be a problem. If something goes sideways, literally, because baby B tends to go sideways once they create a vacuum and they have room to kind of swim around in there before they come out. That happens a lot. And um, so, I yeah, I was nervous because I'd never done twins before. But I really felt like I was in really good hands, both God's and my midwife's. Yeah, that's so good. So labor starts. Did you go? How how far did you go? 39 weeks and four days. Okay. Yeah. With twins. So with mono dye twins, which if you go to the traditional literature in mainstream medicine, they're going to tell you that mono dye twins are full term at 36 weeks. Yeah. So they would have considered them three and a half weeks, quote unquote, overdue. I don't adhere to that, but it's just interesting to think of it in those terms because, you know, they typically say that singletons are 38 weeks. That's when they're, you know, fully cooked. And I think most babies that aren't kind of primed to come at 38 weeks, were they to be induced at 38 weeks would have some lung issues and some, you know, so it's it's, it's just an interesting, somewhat arbitrary like kind of deadline that they've, they've given people. But I think the traditional medical mindset tends to be a little bit like there's always the NICU. We can, Mm -hmm. we can always, we can always 
you know, at least they'll be out and we have more control, which yeah. I get it. I get it. But that was not what we were thinking. So I will say that I, I don't know about completely freaked out my midwife, but she was a little bit like, have these babies, please. <laughs> like, like, let's, let's get them out, which was kind of satisfying because when you have a midwife that's been practicing for 30 years, you can't do anything to surprise her. Like, yes, you're true. like, well, this happened. She's like, yeah, I've seen that. You're yep. like, oh, but then the, she's like, I've seen that so many times. You just cannot phase this lady. And even so I showed up at 39 weeks and she was like, have these babies. Funny. Yeah, that is great. So you go into labor almost 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. And how did that go? How was your labor with them? So I always say that they were both my easiest and in some ways my hardest slash worst labor because I was having prodromal labor ho-hum at this point who cares this is what my body does I mean I started having Braxton Hicks at like 18 19 weeks now those don't hurt at all but it's just it's mentally exhausting right it's it's another thing your brain has to process so you just have to turn off that part of your brain that even registers that you're just like yes I mean who walks up and touches but well weird people walk up and touch your belly but I just my husband will put his arm he's like are you having a because it's so tight it doesn't hurt but it's so tight and I'm not even halfway through a pregnancy. So I've been doing this for forever during this pregnancy as well. But then I started developing like a pattern of labor and was like, oh, well, we've got to be getting close. I mean, I'm as big as a house and, and these babies have to come soon. I'm almost 40 weeks. And I kept going into shakes and I mean, my, my midwife, I, if, if I use this term, people get very technical and they're like adrenal failure. Oh, well, that means this, this, and this. Well, let's call it just adrenal overload or something because my midwife is like, your, your adrenals are shot. Like you're tired, your body's done, but it's not quite able to trigger itself into the pattern that will produce babies. And I am very much so like that. My body's very reactive. It's very stop, start. It freaks out and quits. Then it starts. Yeah. It's obnoxious is what oh, it is. Oh, I, I feel you. Every time you talk about this, I'm like, yes, I know you're explaining my life. <laughs> well, and you're right that it's not, it's not super common to be people's stories, especially home birth people, because I feel like most home birthers have fairly precipitous labors um, or, or at the very least, like this kind of. It's a normal mm-hmm. pattern of right. yep, up right. baby. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Goes, 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 and then you get a baby. Yep. And it, to some extent, that's kind of why they keep doing home birth because it's somewhat predictable. So when you're like, I think a lot of people that I've talked to that do that, like either choose to induce, which I have had one induction, so I'm not throwing shade your direction, but um, choose to induce or like try to do something to control it more because it can be. I feel like on two ends of the spectrum, you have what we do, which is just exhausting. It's mentally and physically exhausting. You're just like, I have no idea if I'm having a baby now or in three days or in a week. Like, it's just wears you out. And then you have the people that do the freight train labors. And I would rather be me Mm. because at least I have a lot of time to mentally prepare the ones that wake up in the middle of the night and have a baby in an hour and a half. I know they had them really fast, but they, yeah. I, they're like traumatized yeah. by yep. feeling like their body just got thrown through a washing machine and a scary washing machine at that, mm-hmm. um, a painful washing machine. So yeah, it started that way. And I was having these shakes where I literally couldn't control my muscles. 
and was having to do Lamaze breathing to calm them down. And then they would go away and I would feel fine, but really tired. And then I would start contracting again and start shaking. So it was like a combination of, I went over to a friend's house, which sounds like a normal thing to do, but I barely functioned while I was there. And then I came home and I slept, but I woke up in the middle of the night to contract. And then we went to out to eat and went to Lowe's, which sounds normal. But by the time I got home, I was shaking again and couldn't control it. And so it was definitely like being on a mental seesaw of like, I feel fine. I need to get these babies out. I feel terrible. I couldn't possibly be in labor right now because I would not mentally or physically be able to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part really stank. Like yeah. it was scary and it was frustrating and it was disappointing and it just felt like lord i've carried these babies for this long to do this for my body to like fail me because that's what it felt like it was doing yeah then i've had three or four labors where i i don't know if you've ever done this before um when you find a solution to something and then you encounter the same problem but it's like years later and you forget what your solution was. And then you remember the solution and you're like, why didn't I try this sooner? So for several babies, I've had to just be really still and pray and breathe and read scripture because my body is so freaked out. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I might feel mentally calm and my body is just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So I, got on the couch after two days of this nonsense back and forth, not sleeping very well, feeling like I couldn't do this, feeling like I had to do this, get it over with and read the Psalms and felt those contractions come back and thought, who cares? These aren't going to be real. But then they just started coming a little more regularly and more, and you start timing them, like try not to scare them off. And we did finally call my midwife after about two hours of that and, um, and I had babies five hours later. So wow, yeah, that it was, it was the thing where you start having contractions. They get gradually worse and worse and well, harder, 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 more intense, closer together, longer, all the things that produce a baby, except it never got like, I don't, I don't remember transition mm-hmm. in this labor. It never got to the point where you're grabbing things and panting and can't talk. And it was so mild compared to any labor I've had before or since. Um, and it's just, it was just such a gift. My, she kept, I mean, she kept checking me. It's, it's twins. She's going to pay attention. I know a lot of people like, don't ever check Mm. the mom, but I, you know, we wanted to know where we progressing. Mm -hmm. And so I remember each time she checked me, she checked me maybe three times. I was like, no way I cannot be a seven. Like there's just no, I feel fine. Yes. This hurts. Yes. I'm having to breathe and work through them but I'm fine. Like this is not a seven contraction or an eight or, and then at one point she's like, you're pretty much complete. You could have these babies. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) Like there's no, there's no way I don't have labors like this. So in that way it was the best because it was just such a gift to be so, um, so mellow compared to some of the other ones, which have been really hard. Yeah, that is a gift. So were they both, um, head down? When they came no, or- um, they were head down going into the labor, which is a huge prayer. Okay. Um, so they were both head down going into the labor. But like I mentioned before, it is extremely common once baby A is delivered when that vacuum happens, they've been squished up. I mean, you just are all baby at that point. You There's nowhere. They can't really turn very much. They can't do much, much of anything because they are so just crammed in there. And um, And then all of a sudden they have all this space. And so it's extremely common 
for baby B to do some sort of somersault. And I would say that probably anybody delivering a set of twins vaginally is expecting baby B to come out without, with some other body part than their head presenting. Mm -hmm. Well, baby A, her name is Evie, was on my chest. And I, my midwife had told me like, you never know how long it's going to be. Like your body might stop for two hours. And I was like, no, uh, it might stop for 20 minutes. Some people have had a twin and then had a twin a week later. I don't, don't ask me. I, I don't oh even, gosh. I think I don't want to make stuff up, but I do remember something about a lady who had a really weird situation, which wasn't technically twins. It was like, she had gotten pregnant while pregnant. Like there's a, there's a thing. I have heard happen. of that. Mm -hmm. And so they had two different gestational, but they were like three months apart. So she had a baby and then she had another, like how so crazy, like, ah, yeah, that would be, that would be mind blowing. Um, so I didn't know I was kind of mentally, she said my midwife had delivered, like said about 20 sets and the longest gap she'd seen was two hours. And she's like, typically I'm looking, you're looking at like 20 minutes. So there's just no way to know. So I have a baby on my chest. And it hasn't been that long and I'm having pushing urges and I'm like, uh, Thalia, I don't, I don't think it's going to be 20 minutes. Like I, I'm pretty sure. Oh, and it's like crowning, burning pressure. And she goes, okay, we've got a water bag, which made me so sad. Cause I was like, that's a head. And she said water bag. And I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> like this is not going to be the whole baby coming out. So I, um, and the baby on my chest was six pounds, four ounces. She came out in a couple pushes, like, you know, but six pounds, four ounces is great. Like that's mm -hmm. a great twin size, Beautiful, but yeah. she wasn't hard to push out is my point. And so all the burning, all the stretching, all the pressure. And she says, I'm going to pop the water bag. Like don't push. She pops the water bag and she says, Oh, and I'm like, Oh, what? You know, like where, where are we going with? Oh. And she's like, it's feet, not head. And I lifted up my head and I said, well, what do I do now? And she says, you push. And I said, now I don't have a, she's yep start pushing. So chin to chest, I'm holding a baby. Um, I, you know, I, it's all blurry. Mm -hmm. I think I might've passed baby off at that point to Sean. Um, like here, mm -hmm. hold, hold her while I have her sister. Um, and she just told me just, just keep going. If you can don't stop, you know, kind of thing. So she basically was feet, feet coming out. And then she kind of folded in half and kind of came out um, Frank, uh -huh. ultimately, okay. I don't know how your feet, she did it somehow. Um, we have a picture and she's like folded in half with her butt coming up as she started feet presenting, but she came out great because you've already paved the way with baby number one. And that you can have a lot of complications with baby B, but a lot of times the fact that they've turned isn't as scary as it would be with a singleton because the vaginal canal is already open and you're ready for this second baby to come out. So she came out great. No problems whatsoever. Like I said, two just really easy pushing experiences and the most incredibly calm and wonderful labor leading up to it, except for the two days where I was yeah. in labor and it was awful. That's a drag. Yeah. yeah. But I also want to know, like breach delivery is a lot less scary when you have a provider who's also trained in breach. Hundred percent. She knew what she was doing. Yeah. And she told me afterwards, she's like, listen, it wouldn't have been pleasant for you, but if she had for some reason not come mm -hmm. out like the, with those first pushes, I would have gotten up in there and turned her 
we would have been fine. And so to have somebody that's calmly like, I can do this, I know what to do, as opposed to someone that's never been trained in that. And I'm sure that's a panic moment of Mm -hmm. like, oh, no, if this baby gets stuck, that's on me. Then yeah, it's completely different. I agree. Yeah. But it's important to know, because I think right now, there's just this fear of, of birth in general, but then you add breach or you add twin to it. And then it's a next level fear. And that when that fear is there, there's a lot of controlling. And so mm-hmm. a lot of decisions come when we're trying to control everything. So I love hearing that perspective um, and that story, just as a reminder, like you don't have to control every situation. Birth works most of the time, but then when it doesn't, like it's really great to have a provider who's trained so glad you had that option and that ability to have her there with you. I'm sure that made all the difference. Yes, it really did. Yeah. So I fully believe that birth is such a great training ground for learning lessons um, that can carry with us into motherhood. And that's your expertise. I mean, being a mom of 10, like, amazing. I'm sure you've learned so much and have so much wisdom. I know you do because I've read your book. Um, but is there one lesson that kind of sticks out to you with this specific twin birth? Oh man, it would probably just be that returning to the thing that we always forget. We are trying to control things. We're Mm -hmm. freaking out and we go back to God's word and we go back to the well of water and wisdom that never runs dry. And we, um, we discover truly that he keeps him or her in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him. And that is literally what, I mean, I, I can't even begin to express it more clearly than that is what got my labor going and kept it going. That, that, that hour, two hours really of sitting there and reading Psalms and saying, Lord, this is your birth. These are your babies. I get to have them, but like, this is, this is on you. This is on you because I clearly cannot make this happen and having it be, um, according to how he wanted it to be. That reminder just in motherhood is huge as well. Yeah. Yeah. That surrender is beautiful for sure. Well, okay. So we'll do a quick, you had another set of twins, but it was Mm -hmm. a little bit different than your first Mm -hmm. set. So could you just quickly go through what that was like? Why did you make the decisions you made for that one? And what lessons did you learn through that? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, my midwife Thalia actually died of a stroke uh-huh. when my number six, Theo was in utero. I got to see her one last time in my first midwife visit. And she, she actually died two days later. She had a stroke the next day and then she died two days later. And so she was not my midwife at the next several births. And then when I got pregnant with what I thought was one baby boy, and then turned out to be two baby boys, my midwife that I'd been using for the last three pregnancies, who had been an assistant at Evie and Nola's birth, my first twin birth, um, and was now my primary midwife, fantastic, uh, was actually closing her practice because she was also a nurse in the ER and it was just too much on her family to balance both. And the scheduling was working out because you can't schedule when babies are born to be um, a nurse. And so she, she loved her practice, but she was closing it, but she wasn't closing it before the babies were due. So I asked her if she would still take me as a client. Cause I wasn't a new client. She wasn't taking any new clients, but of course I've been with her for a long time. And she said, she said she would, when we knew it was a singleton. And then I came back and was like, by the way, I just found out it is twins. And she said, I'll, um, I will think about it, but just know that I am not delivering twins at home or in a birth center. I only 
do hospital births. And that felt like a blow because here I've gotten into my rhythm of having babies at home and I enjoy it and I feel comfortable there and you know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And not only do I, I go back to the hospital setting, which I didn't really enjoy the first time, but I don't know what to expect because I, I know that they typically do a lot of interventions for multiples and want that control and do a lot more oversight. And I, and I wasn't, I want my babies to be healthy, of course, but I have shown my body has shown itself to be capable of having births. They may be long and drawn out, but the actual births themselves have always been very safe and very, um, very healthy. So I'm going to rely on that and the Lord. And so I'm like, no. So what we ended up doing was going with a co-care option where she had a uh, OBGYN that she'd worked with multiple times, either in multiples pregnancies or in more high-risk pregnancies or where someone wanted to be in a hospital, but also have a midwife present. And they were about an hour away. And she used this lady because while she herself was not necessarily supernaturally minded, supernaturally minded, <laughs> she was not very, <laughs> very holistically minded. She was fine with other people being that way. And mm-hmm. so she didn't tend to interfere. She tended to, especially if you had moms who had proven themselves, you know, had proof, proof, what's that phrase? Like proven uteruses, I think yeah. it's like kind of a phrase. Proven pelvis. Uh-huh. Proven pelvis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, when, when you have that mom she's going to be saying like, what's your preference? How do you want this to go? I'm here to facilitate this. And so Melina was like, she'll work with you. So I had to kind of give up that preference dream, whatever you want to call it. And um, we ended up doing co-care, but this is the year 2020 when things are very restrictive, weird. Um, Honestly, in some ways it ended up being a boon because I think they would have hovered over me a whole lot more except that people were turning down like cancer patients like uh, my little twin niece had a medical procedure she needed to get done that she could not I mean needed to get done that she could not even get an appointment for because of COVID Mm -hmm. so instead of hovering they were like limiting my appointments so I ended up alternating appointments once a month ish throughout the pregnancy nobody hovered if I'm completely honest, they probably were slightly negligent as in they were probably <laughs> given my age at the time I was 37. I mean, I don't think that's old, but they mm-hmm. typically, they typically like freak out about you, you know, oh, yeah. your advanced pregnancy, maternal age, or advanced ge- maternal age, uh-huh. geriatric, all that yep. stuff. <laughs> they didn't bother me about that. <laughs> they didn't do very many sonograms. I mean, I have people with twin pregnancies that weren't monodi that were getting stress tests every single week yeah. and they didn't do any of that, which I was fine with because it was a healthy pregnancy, but hard pregnancy, just, you know, my body was older, second set of twins, ninth and 10th babies, um, ended up having decent amount of edema, some pubic bone symbiosis type stabbing pain. Hips were definitely not feeling attached to my body anymore. It was (laughs) Um, But other than that, the babies were healthy and strong. It was just really uncomfortable and really painful toward the end. And so um, I had, I was just going to go as long as I went and my doctor was fine with that. But then her GP over her started putting pressure on her to say, this is a mono die. We need to get these babies out. And she wasn't willing to just toe the line and say, okay, 36 weeks, you have to, you have to evict these babies. But she said, can we talk about 38 weeks? So I have twin girls that were born on September 24th, and they have been praying this entire pregnancy that their twin brothers will be born on the same day. 
which the fact that it's even an option is insane. Like the fact that my gestation that I that I got pregnant at a close enough time to there being viable and available to be birthed at a time when it was there, like it's nuts. Um, But they were off by a couple of weeks. So after my doctor had talked to me a couple of times about, you know, can we, can we discuss like having a deadline? I said, um, you're probably gonna think this is weird because you think I'm going to want to go as long as possible. But what about 37 weeks and two days? Because it's my, that's my girl's birthday. And so if we do an induction, which I had never even considered before ever, um, like I want to just keep going, but, but if we're getting closer and you, you're starting to think I, you want me to do an induction, that would be my preferred day kind of thing. So, um, we did a sonogram at 36 weeks, a biophysical to make sure they were growing well, that placenta was not degrading. The amniotic fluid, fluid levels were high. They were doing practice breathing, all of those things. Cause I said, if they're not doing any of those 36 weeks, drop the induction. I just want to go as long as you'll let me go. Um, and my midwife really didn't have any clout at this point. She could make suggestions, but they were, they were like, he, the doctor was being magnanimous in a way to declare her a medically necessary person. Um, because that was when they had so many restrictions, not in Texas, thankfully, or at least in our area of Texas, but in some hospitals, dads weren't even able to attend deliveries. So to have somebody that wasn't a close relative or the spouse, she was like, I'm going to put it down though. And I'm going to fight for it. I don't think she ended up having to, because they were looser, but so my midwife wasn't really able to say like, Hey, just let her go to 39 weeks or whatever. She she's so we had a tentatively scheduled induction. I'm doing all this prodromal labor stuff. I am dreading this hospital birth because it just feels so foreign. And I feel like I, yeah, it just, it just felt weird, but I'm trusting that the Lord has this happening for a reason because I didn't choose any of this. It was just the only path available. If I was not going to go with someone I didn't know at all in a much more restrictive environment. And I didn't want that option. So I was like, oh, you provided a way. You provided a way for this to be as natural as possible. Um, Except that we were talking about induction and I was like, who even am I? So I went in the night before, totally depressed. Like just, I was surprised at how down I felt. I just, it just didn't, you get so weird in your head right before having a baby sometimes. And I was just like, I, I don't even feel like I can do this emotionally, but I have to. So here we go. And um, the Lord provided some really sweet nurses. And I started contracting like crazy when they did the suppository for um, cervix softening, which is not actually supposed to start contractions. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's you kind of have to already be in labor for that to do something. So Sean's like, I think you were in late, like you were having these babies. And then getting an induction on top of it. And the hilarious part is the induction like killed my labor. Like I was contracting and then the Pitocin like Uh. killed it. And the nurse was like, I don't understand. Like ding, ding, ding. Is this thing on? Like what is going? She's watching the monitor. And I also got my first and only. And I, even if we have more kids, I don't imagine I'll ever get another epidural unless someone tells me it's medically necessary. Like in this situation, which it wasn't medically necessary, but basically 
you have to deliver twins in the hospital in an OR yep. under bright lights with an mm -hmm. operating table right beside you. Like mm -hmm. they are going to flop you over and cut mm -hmm. you open in a heartbeat if something goes wrong. Yep. And so I chose to get an epidural, like even down to the wire. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. But I chose to get an epidural so that I could be awake should something happen because they will knock you out because they won't have time for the epidural to take effect. So you would just be gone if they did a C-section without your having the epidural. So we had talked it over. We had gone through all the pros and cons. I've heard all of them. I know mm -hmm. all the natural minded people are freaking out right now, but um, it's where we landed. Mm -hmm. And so I was already contracting going into this like pretty strong pattern. They were starting to get more intense, all the things, but then that Pitocin killed him it was she was like scale of one to ten I'm like two like this is wow. not, she's like I don't understand so they gave me the epidural I can't ever go to sleep but I lie there in bed feeling basically nothing which was such a strange experience because I knew that I was making some progress it gets to six in the evening and I told you that my like big labors are seven hours and I'm like we're not gonna this is not happening like I, it is not kicked in. She is still looking at the monitor. Like, I don't understand. So the, the nurse, the nurse is changing because she's been there for 12 mm -hmm. hours. I'm still at like a five, maybe a six. And I'm like, I don't go from a six to a 10 in yeah. like, that's happened once that I've done it in fewer than five hours. Like, this is not what my body does. And, um, so I'm starting to think, okay, Lord, well, you know, maybe we should just let it run its course and it would have happened anyway. So I get on Instagram because people were praying for me and knew that I'd had an induction and it's been hours and hours. And I'm sure people are like, Ooh, where are these, where are these babies? And, um, and I just do a story and say like, still here, still contracting, please pray the babies are delivered safely. And this is the girl's birthday. So if there's any chance that this is Laura's will, could we just pray that this happens? Um, it was 6.15, something like that. Um, I have babies less than an hour later. Oh, wow. So all these thousands of people started praying for me. I mean, it just makes me tear up oh. thinking about it. People all over the world were messaging me. I'm praying, I'm praying. Just hundreds of messages coming through. And the Lord answered their prayers. Oh. Like, so, and um, so within... 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I'm feeling all this pressure because my epidural has worn off the bottom half of me. <laughs> so my upper body is numb still, but I'm like, oh, this does, this feels like, um, okay. And my midwife, I'm kind of like making noises and she's looking at me like, what, what, what are you doing? What? So the changing of the guard is happening. The new nurse is charting. She's not paying any attention to this girl just sitting over here with an epidural in her bed who seems fine. Mm -hmm. And my midwife's like, I think we need to check her. And the, the lady wasn't rude, but she was kind of like, okay, let me finish. And Melina was like, okay. And then she didn't check her and she checked me. And she's like, I, I, I think we need to check her. Cause I, she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I have a ton of pressure. She's like, okay. So they check me and the lady goes, okay, she's a 10. Um, you know, she starts, so all of a sudden people are running everywhere, putting on gowns. Like Sean has to gown up and put a, put a uh -huh. cap on mask on. They're rolling me through this hallway and I just feel such peace, mm. but it's still really weird. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm about to have two boys. Okay. This is okay. This is happening. And, um, my doctor knew that I didn't love having unnecessary to me people. They seemed unnecessary to me people in the room. Cause it's always like my midwife and the assistant and my husband. Like I don't have, I don't have the cheering section. My kids aren't there. My mom's not there. Like it's just 
the essentials. And so she knew. And so I knew there were going to be like 15 people in the room because that's the other thing is that they have backups of backups. They're ready for all the things, but she told him to stand behind me. So there's like a crowd of people like behind me. And I know this, but I can't see them. It's just funny. And, um, by the time I get in there, I am processing that this epidural is gone. Like I am having a baby naturally with no meds because it's, I can feel everything pushing urges, burning all the things, pressure, sharpness, like all the things. And, um, so I'm like, okay, well, I've done it before. It's fine. You know, (laughs) it's not fine. And I was honestly kind of grateful because the one thing is I'm like, I've heard about women that can't feel to push. And I was pretty sure my body knew what it was doing enough not to have that be a problem, but it still was a little bit of a, I sure hope I can feel, Oh, I could feel, I could feel just fine. So I told you that Thalia had told me if I had not gotten baby B out of my first set of twins, she would have, she's like, I'm sorry, it would not have felt good, but I would have gotten up there and got her out. Well, so we get in there. I don't know how many minutes have gone by, but not very many because I had a baby less, you know, two babies fewer than less than an hour later. And, um, and I am saying, can I, I'm, I need to push like is anybody objecting to this because this baby's <laughs> coming out and, the, and the doctor's like, no, go, I'm, I'm ready. And, um, so I start pushing feel, you know, his head and really it's so funny. You talked about like the ways that you, that you, um, grow mm-hmm. and that first birth with Ezra is kind of a blur and there are blurry aspects of all deliveries. Cause you just, there's a lot going on and you're in a lot of pain and you're, there's, you know, so many mm-hmm. things firing, but my ability to kind of almost stand outside myself and watch myself and be completely calm and in the moment and analyzing what's going on is so much bigger than it was when you're just barely making it through the contraction mm-hmm. to survive it. And I remember thinking very clearly, okay, contractions kind of gone, but I think I could get him out. Like, like just kind of just reasoning with myself. Can you, yeah, we're just going to keep going. I think I'd just rather go ahead and get him out. <laughs> like just calmly. Yes, I'm in pain, but it's just, you just don't have the same reaction anymore. You've, you've kind of come into your own of understanding like how much you can stand. And so I just kept bearing down and he came out in one push. Now he was five pounds, four ounces, little bitty guy, but again, totally healthy, put him on my chest and remember, I have no epidural anymore. So my mid, my uh, midwife is down by my foot. She's just kind of cheering me on. Doctor's right there at home plate. And she starts um, digging around in my uterus. And I'm like, kind of, when I have a baby on my chest, I'm kind of crawling off the back of the table because I just delivered a baby and this doesn't feel good. And she is just an extremely no-nonsense woman. I mean, just, she. She did great, but just no nonsense. And I'm like, what are you doing? And Melina's like, she's checking position of baby B. And I'm thinking, okay. So the lady behind me, who is my nurse anesthetist that did my epidural says, you can feel all of this, can't you? Because I'm like, not yelling, but I'm kind of, you know, kind of making noises, like uncomfortable noises. And I said, yes. And she goes, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to boost your epidural. And again, I felt so mentally present that I was like, how in the world is that going to work? this baby's about to come out. Like, how are we going to get an epidural to take effect in time for this 
but there's just too much going on for me to be like, don't. Mm -hmm. And I think she, she, she went for it. So Sean said she watched her do the whole syringe and was like, Oh, okay. So my doctor is digging around in my uterus discovers that baby B has turned transverse and is presenting arm down with the umbilical cord right by his arm. And she just goes into like superhero mode, um, ninja mode, whatever you want to call it. So she gets a hook, she breaks the waters and she gets in there and she starts turning him manually up to her elbows mm. while I'm holding Titus on my chest, trying not to scream basically. And, um, so she says, I need head or feet. I need, she's just kind of talking to herself if she's doing this and she ends up with feet. So she pulls him out one limb at a time and I'm not allowed to push because she's not wanting that extra, like the tightening and pressure and bearing down. And so I'm fighting pushing urges and the pain and all the stuff, just kind of trying to like <laughs> breathe um, while holding this baby. And Sean said it was the most horrific thing he's ever watched. Mm. Just awful awful to watch someone like pull a baby out of mm -hmm. you and he's like it was just scary really mm -hmm. scary because she's pulling hard like she has to get this baby out so finally it's just his head which is always the not ideal thing to be left and um, just positioning and I, I can't remember but I think he might have been chin up and so um I said can I push and she said yeah yeah try and get him out and thankfully he came right out but the minute she lifted him up, he is not doing well. It's obvious mm. he's gray. He's flopping. He's not crying. I just kept saying, why isn't he crying? Why isn't he crying? Why isn't he crying? And they immediately took him. Nobody's answering me because nobody knows. So they take him over to kind of the crash cart and give him oxygen for a while. And I'm holding Titus and trying to see what's going on. It's my firstborn second set of twins. That's confusing. Ninth baby. And they bring him back and put him on my chest. And we have this picture and the difference in their skin tones is really obvious. Titus is pink. Toby's gray. And so he was still retracting and my midwife noticed. So they took him to the nursery and gave him oxygen. Well, this whole time I am starting to get less and less aware of things and starting to feel sick mm. and loopy and out of it. I can't keep like one eye keeps closing and then the other one will close. And I feel like, you know, the room is tilting and I can't figure out why, because I'm too focused on what's happening to Toby. Basically that epidural had just lit me up I was high like oh my was gosh. Just so much medicine in me so and I, my brain could my body couldn't assimilate it my brain and my upper body had already been pretty numb but it was just gone like completely gone because I think the best I can tell the best hypothesis I have is that the catheter got pointed up towards my upper body and so it wasn't distributing down to my lower body anymore so even though she gave me more medicine it went the same place the other medicine was still going mm -hmm. so um thankfully I didn't have any adverse effects other than about 45 minutes of feeling kind of sick and like holding a bag and seeing if I would throw up and hilariously like they latched Titus and I was looking down I was like I can't <laughs> I can't feel anything it's like the boobs not there <laughs> what in the world um but once they brought Toby back about an hour later, he was pink and crying and ready to eat and perfect. And as my midwife said, because I said, Melina, I wouldn't have chosen to come here, but there was oxygen immediately available for him. And, you know, you could argue all day long that like the fact that the doctor pulled him out is why he was in shock and having trouble breathing. But she saved me from a C-section. <laughs> It might have been a little too intense of a way to do it. I don't know. I'm not the one that had to do it, you know. Um, but Melina, my midwife, said, well, if we had had a birth center birth, 
I would have done the same thing. I would have had to turn him. I would have gotten him out. We would have given him, given him oxygen. But that second round, we probably would have put you in an ambulance. Mm. And just having to go somewhere right after you've had a baby, like, or have your baby taken from you to go somewhere because you're with the other baby would have been really hard. So I just really felt like the Lord was gracious, even though it was like this whole list of things that aren't the way that I prefer to do it, mm-hmm. aren't the way that I wanted it to go. Um, that everything that we needed to keep Toby healthy was right there already. And he was great after that hour. Um, Cause you know, I always say like, I don't want to go to the hospital unless I absolutely have to, but I'm grateful that they're there if it's, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's Mm -hmm. necessary. And in this case, that was my only option. And it ended up being something that um, the Lord used for good. So yeah, two very different experiences, but I had both of them vaginally and neither one was in the NICU for even a second. And both of them are perfectly healthy and worked out absolutely great. The Lord was so good. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing those. Those are very, in both of them, intense in their own way. And I was actually just thinking today, as much as I'm a home birth advocate, I have come so far from like, first off, birthing in the hospital, not knowing any different. That's just what you do to, if I have another hospital birth, I think I might just die. Like, (laughs) you know, being so extreme and like, this is the only way. And then each birth I've had, I just feel like the peace of the Lord. And also I have been with many women who, you know, have gone to the hospital and have had the most amazing births. Yeah, such so, good births. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And all especially when they are praying beforehand, they make decisions out of a sound mind, not out of fear, and they invite the Lord into that. Um, yeah, because we can't we can't be arrogant enough to say that this process is what produces our peace and our joy. Oh, like, yeah, that's so a home birthing process may be our preference, and it may honestly be the more natural thing to do and better in most cases. But if if that's where our hope is, yeah, we've got it backwards. Yes, and the Lord has brought me so far. He's taught me so many things. So just even today, I was like, you know, if I ever have another baby and I have to birth in the hospital, I know I'll be okay. Like, I know I will have that peace. And so just sharing, like, you had that peace with you that beside or, you know, despite all circumstances, like that peace was present. And so that's so beautiful. And isn't that true in motherhood too, right? Like, despite circumstances, despite the chaos, um, you know, I've had plenty of that today, even like that peace can still be present. And so what a great lesson. Well, before we end, would you, um, I, I did want to ask you, like, how was it that you got that conviction just to allow the Lord to give you as many children as, as he wanted to, um, where did that come from? Yeah, I think it came from the Lord, but also through the vehicle of my parents. I only have Mm -hmm. one brother. People always assume that I have lots of siblings because, you know, we only ever do what we come from. Huh? No, Mm -hmm. we don't. People right. do all kinds of different things than their, <laughs> than their, you know, original families do. And I actually have uh, my second episode of my podcast goes into this in great detail. So if you're okay, curious great. about more, I talk about that a lot. But um, because it is such a common question that I get asked, it is something that is very prevalent in our culture that people want to know. How do you know? Like, what's what's the end? Give me give me some concrete 
formula that I can follow to know that I've had the quote unquote right number of children. And I just don't see that in scripture, that that's what we're striving for. And so the kind of core verse of that conviction is something that you've heard many, many times before. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And I just feel like we live in a culture that says all my ways, but my fertility. Like you don't mean that one. Mm. That's that affects my finances. It affects my health. It affects my body. It affects my relationship with my husband. It affects my free time. It affects like it basically runs my life and you can't possibly want that Lord. And I really do think that he does. And I see so much joy in approaching it from an open-handed perspective. Now, I think that there is a range and I am probably more on the totally fine with some spacing and um, some like self-control if you are overwhelmed and the Lord has not given you this really strong conviction to not do that. And there are people that are like, we've never done anything to prevent ever. And I for sure am opposed to, and always have been opposed to any kind of birth control that um, kills babies. So I believe life begins at conception. And so when you're looking at chemical birth control, at least one of the ways that it works as sort of a fail safe is that if you do get pregnant, even while you're on the pill, or if you're on a copper IUD, for example, that your uterus is made inhospitable to housing that baby and allowing the baby to implant. So you have an embryo that's formed and then your body is actually like fighting against it to allow them to be there. And I don't ever want to make my body, my womb, an inhospitable place for life. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I do feel like that is something that is antithetical to scripture and what we are called to do, to be open, to trust God, to I know people take fruitful and multiply and take it out of context, but the emphasis is on children being a good thing as opposed to something to avoid at all costs. So I'm going to lean more in that direction. And I came from a family who um, viewed children as a blessing. My mom would have gladly had more and her body just would not do it. Like she just wasn't the one that the Lord chose to give that desire of her heart. And I, on the flip side, was not gunning for a particular number of children ever. It was just, I didn't choose to limit intensely like is so common in our society and as a result the lord gave me not only you know six singletons but two sets of twins which again was something i was praying against and he said sorry no i'm not listening to that prayer because that's not what you actually need yeah. and i actually have been pregnant with another set of twins and all three sets were mono die which is extremely rare extremely unusual so it's almost we lost our um our number 6 he would have been our number 7 to um finishing twin syndrome at 8 weeks uh-huh. and Um, it's almost like the Lord was like, not only is this not what I have for you, here's what I have for you. That's extremely unusual and out there and like makes you more likely to do this somehow, even though there's no medical, um, there's no medical studies that show why any one woman would be more likely to have identical twins fraternal twins. Yes. But identical twins. No. So to have been kind of singled out for the Lord to give such a resounding, no, not your way my way has been an interesting lesson to learn. So just seeing my mom's open-handedness, being informed, being taught to critically think and not just say, this is what the world does. Therefore, this is what I will do because you have it coming down from the pulpit. You literally have pastors saying that the best thing you can do for your marriage is to avoid children for X, Y, and Z amount of time and not have them too close together and not have too many of them. And I'm just going to say that there's no biblical backing for that. I cannot then turn around and say that there's a biblical backing for you must have children as soon as possible and you must have this many and you must do it this way. 
But again, what I'm going to err on, hopefully, is the side of openness to the Lord's plans and openness to life, as opposed to err on the side of extreme control and fear, because it is a lot of, it. it is very, very, it can be really scary to think about how many kids the Lord might give you and what kind of money that would take from you is yeah. how we tend to look at it. Well, yeah, I was so, going to say that's the most common objection is, well, how am I going to afford more children? And Allie, I will tell you that I get messages constantly whenever I get this question and I answer it from our perspective and the Lord has absolutely grown our finances with our children, like without, without our being like, okay, here comes babies number four and five. Now, what are we doing to make sure that this is covered? Uh, that was a scary prospect, but this job came along and, and Sean did that job and then that connected him with something else. And then he used some of that money to put into a rental. And then we built a house and we sold the house because we built it with our own hands and got some, you know, just, it took years. It was not this, like, let me drop this amount for 10 children in your lap. And then you just parcel it out over the years. That was a, that was another way of trusting the Lord because starting out with his one salary and someone said, you're going to have 10 years. You, you just fall over and say, well, well, we can't feed them. You know, like it's, that, that's not, that's not wise. That's not, and the, the stewardship and the wisdom and the, and, but it's this concept of, and, and somebody's going to roll their eyes and somebody's going to say, yeah, I get that because I've seen it play out in my life. Man's wisdom is foolishness to God, because as we're out here portioning out every single little bit we're supposed to have, we're forgetting, we have no idea what he's going to do with us in 10 years. We cannot take what we have now and say, in my stingy mind, this is the only portion I ever get, and it will never be enough. When the Lord is over here multiplying the loaves and the fishes and saying, listen, if you would pry your fingers off of this and watch what I would do. And let me tell you, I get messages all the time. I started to say this from people who, when I answer this question that like, we don't base our number of children on our current income, we base it on trusting that the Lord will provide, you will equip those whom he has called. And that may mean that we just have enough. And people have said, oh, yes, we have seven kids. We live in a three bedroom house. People say we are crazy. We shouldn't do this. We have so much joy in our home and we have so many stories of relying on the Lord and how good he's been to us. And no, we don't have a lot of extra, but we have enough to have a guest over for dinner. Like we, we, we always have that extra portion and we're going to set that table for Elijah, you know, that concept of, of generosity. And the more generous we are with this, the more we find the Lord is generous with us, even if it doesn't look like the world views as affluence or generosity. I mean, they just come flooding in anytime I, I address this. Yeah. Um, and I know that I also hear the flip side of people that say that my parents had eight children and they really shouldn't have because we weren't well provided for. And we, we wore hand-me-down clothes and we didn't need enough of this and we didn't get to go to these social programs. And so you have to, you do have to adjust your mindset for what enough is. And, um, well, my mentor and one of my best friends named Jennifer Flanders, and, um, she has 12 kids. She has an awesome ministry online, Flanders Family, if you want to look her up on the internet. Um, and she's so good about saying whatever it is that, I, that I'm talking to her about. Oh, man, this is going to be so cool to see how the Lord uses this. Like, because he did it on purpose. Like, it's, it's not like he doesn't know. It's not like he doesn't know 
you were trying to have a fourth kid, but yet you got pregnant anyway. Not you. I just mean someone. It's not like he's confused about the fact that you have twins. It's not like he's surprised by the fact that you got pregnant three months after you just had this baby and you were totally freaking out, but he's not, you know, and I'm not at all downplaying the emotions that we genuinely experience when we just don't know how we can do this. I just got a message from someone who is having five kids in three years. She has a baby, a set of twins, and is pregnant with another set of twins. And I think her question of how do I survive is very legitimate. I haven't ever had them quite that close together, but I've had five, six and under. And you do, you sit on the floor and you think, well, we've got peanut butter and bread and, um, daddy's gone on a work trip and I might not get off the floor, but we're going to have peanut butter and bread. And that may be all you have for that day, but that's the enough, you know? So it just depends on whether you're willing to view the Lord's provision in radical terms. Um, And I can say that from the Lord having provided more than enough for us right now. And if people look at our circumstances now and say, well, easy for you to say, um, but it's, it's really not, it's, it's really still a struggle. I still think it would be inconvenient if it happened at this time. And if we had another set of, you know, like I can, my brain can still go there. Even I think it's a lifelong process of surrender. It's not a one and done thing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a beautiful perspective. Oh man. Well, and it just makes me think of your new book. Um, hard is not the same thing as bad. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I just think of that in regards to birth, birth is hard, it's work, but that doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, some of the greatest joys I have is when I have a new fresh baby that has just pulled up to my chest. There's there's nothing that beats that. And then you can carry that into motherhood and you can see, and which is what your book is about is motherhood can be hard, but that doesn't mean it's bad. So do you want to talk just a little bit about about that and then we can close up. Yeah, sure. So the 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 subtitle of the book is uh the per- the perspective shift that could completely change the way you mother. Mm. And the reason I chose that subtitle is because that's what people have literally told me from hearing the phrase alone. The book isn't out for it's available for pre-order, but people have not read it yet. The phrase alone has been a revelation to enough people that they are like I went from dreading bath time, diaper changes, tantrums, having to make dinner again to saying, this may not be my favorite thing. And it is hard for me. This is a challenge for me, but I am cleaning my family. I am keeping them healthy. I am feeding them. What? That's a, that's a good thing. Um, I saw this, um, someone sent me a video from a really popular mom blogger, Instagrammer right now. And she's very funny and she's very witty, but her big shtick is you will not tell me not to complain. You will not, you know, limit my ability to express myself. I love my kids, but I'm going to tell you how much it stinks that I have to make dinner every night. I'm going to make sure that we all, I am a safe place. You want to, you want to get on the complaining bus and on the grumble bus, climb in. I've got room for you, sister. Beep, beep. Let's go. And here's the problem with that. While I can understand the appeal, I really can. It's that it mires you in a mindset that keeps you from being, it blinds you to goodness. 
Um, and once you have that perspective shift from not this stinks, I hate it. I think she used the phrase, this blows chunks or something like that. <laughs> I, I'm, we all know this. And I thought, yeah. no, I actually don't know that anymore. Mm-hmm. What I know is that it is a privilege to have the responsibility. I don't have to do happy dances in the middle of making dinner again, or in the middle of dealing with twin tantrums. They scream in the car a lot. It's not my favorite. I am not like, thank you, Lord, my twins are screaming, but I am like, thank you, Lord, for opportunities to have patience. Thank you that we're home in five minutes. Like you can, you can look at it two different ways. And you can either say, I will complain because it's my right. Or you can say, I have been called to rejoice always. That does not mean enjoying always. I say that in Emma's for Mama. Rejoicing always is not the same thing as enjoying always. You don't have to love your circumstances to say, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to grow. And so hard is not the same thing as bad, then takes it to the next step. Okay, we've bucked the cultural trends. We're not going to high five each other about how badly today went. We're not going to say, ugh. Your kids are the worst, mine too. So then what do you do with that? Because you're just stepping into that whole thing where you say, okay, I'm embracing hard. Guess what the Lord's going to do if you say, make me braver, make me more patient. Oh, yeah. Those are dangerous say, prayers. Here's your opportunity. <laughs> Here's your practice. Yeah. You're going to get better at it through my strength, through all of this practice I'm going to give you. And the world says, uh, no, thanks. Mm. Not worth it. And we can say in Christ's strength, it is worth it because mm-hmm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means the the boring mundane stuff and the baby, fresh baby on my chest stuff, you know, like that verse is so misused because it's yeah. like, oh, I can, I can get that promotion through Christ who strengthens yeah. me. No, he says I can be content yes. in plenty and want and yes. sickness and health, like eh, whatever the Lord brings me that I can do because the Lord gives you strength to do it when it's easy and when it's hard. Yeah. Well, just before that, doesn't Paul talk about how he knows what it's like to be in lack and he knows what it's like to be rich. Yeah. I mean, he's been both. He's been through it all and through it all. He can be content and because of the Lord. That is beautiful. Thank you so much, Abby. I just so appreciate your time to come on and share your heart and share your stories. So if people want to hear more, where can they connect with you? Um, I'm over on M is for mama.net um, or .com. Either one of those works and um, have over 600 blog posts, blog posts, a shop with um, PDF resources. Um, if you're in Texas and you want to come, if this comes out, I don't know when this is coming out, but if this comes out before September 30th and you're in Texas and you want to come to the MS for mama, or the hard is not same thing as bad book launch, those tickets are on there. Okay. Um, and um, you can find me on my podcast, which is also called Emma's for Mama. I'm on Instagram and other social media at m.is.4.mama because people can't read Emma's for Mama altogether. <laughs> it brings them out. Um, and I'm on YouTube as well with the same name. Awesome. I'll put all of that in the link or in the show notes below. So thank you again. You're welcome. I hope you loved today's episode and found it so helpful and encouraging. If you did, would you take 30 seconds to leave a review on the Apple podcast or send this episode to a friend who has been praying for a peaceful home birth? Lastly, make sure you get my free download of my complete home birth essentials checklist. Make sure you have everything ready to go so you're able to feel at peace and confidence leading into your home birth. This printable checklist has all of the important but less glamorous or thought of items that I have found to be so incredibly helpful to have at a home birth after working with many clients in person. Now, get it by clicking the link in the show notes 
And as always, thanks for listening and peace be with you.